Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you bring missionary discipleship into the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Good morning, Kit. Hey, good morning, everyone. Hope that you are having a very blessed Saturday. You can catch us each Saturday here on Relevant Radio AM 1330 at 11 a.m. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast. Again, that's mncatholic.org slash podcast. You can also find The Bridge Builder on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week, we bring you great interviews on some of the major in- issues impacting our public life. We also answer your questions via our mailbag segment, and you can email those to us at show at mncatholic.org or contact us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And it wouldn't be the bridge builder if we didn't provide you practical ways that you could become a missionary disciple in the public arena through our bricklayer segment. The bridges are built through... Uh, laying one brick at a time, brick by brick, as we like to say. So we always conclude our show with the bricklayer. Today, we're really focusing on something that's on a lot of people's minds, and that's the increasing uh, divisiveness, rancor, the, the real difficult challenges that we're facing in our public rhetoric, the animosity um, that's uh, so prevalent. And, and you could even say, and one might argue that we're even criminalizing on some level our political differences. Uh, this is a challenging time for our public life, but also it's challenging for us as a church to consider how we enter into that conversation as well. And today we have a very special guest uh, coming to us from Washington, D.C. Kim Daniels is on the line, and Kim is a real experienced veteran in communications, has assisted the church in many ways to help us communicate a clear, compelling gospel message and enter into the public discourse and public life. She is the associate director of the Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life at Georgetown University. She has served as a spokesperson for the president of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops when Cardinal Timothy Dolan was the president, and she also serves on the Vatican's dicastery for communications. And she's again joined us graciously this morning from Washington, D.C. to talk a little bit more about uh, the public conversation and how we inject civility into our public life, but how the church can better enter and evangelize in this context. Good morning, Kim. It's great to have you with us. Good morning, Jason and Kit. It's great to be here. What lessons did you take away from your experience as a spokesperson for Cardinal Dolan and the USCCB about the Church's role in the public conversation generally? Well, first of all, I think there there are a few Church leaders who less need a spokesperson than Cardinal Dolan. He is a, he is a wonderful communicator himself, and I learned a lot of lessons from him. Uh, and, and the first is to be a straight shooter, uh, to be honest and transparent, um, because I think that that the first thing that that both members of our church that that our fellow Catholics are looking for, and also the the broader uh, society that we're called to evangelize, is honesty and a real focus and humility about our failings, about what's gone wrong. Um, but most of all, just be a straight shooter. Be you know be upfront about our failings and, and recognize them humbly, and recognize that we're called at this particular moment with the real loss of credibility that we've suffered because of this horrific abuse crisis to be humble and to, to really refocus on our gospel mission. In Minnesota, we like straight shooters so much that we even elected a former pro wrestler as our governor. So, uh, <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> I think that's a message that will resonate with people locally here, too. 
people, I think, generally in the pews uh, are skeptical of the media and working with the media and always feel like media is not being a straight shooter, especially when it comes to issues related to the Catholic Church, that there is an agenda there and it's hard to trust the media. What What's your experience uh, working with the media as a representative of the church, as a spokesperson for the church? And what's that relationship like? And should we always be skeptical? How can we do it better? What were your experiences in that regard? You know, that's a great question, Jason. I came into this, my background is actually as a lawyer. So right to uh, two professions that don't get a lot of trust, lawyer and, and uh, relationships with the media. I, but, but I came in with that general viewpoint that certainly the work I had done on religious liberty and pro-life issues, I often felt like the media was against us on that. And in fact, they often are. And, and I had had that experience personally. But I'll tell you, when I started to work for the church directly on communications and really build relationships with journalists, with people in the media, I actually came to a different conclusion. I think most of the people, particularly those who are on the religion beat, really want to do a good job. I mean, they're there. They, they want to understand our church. Many of them do understand our church, our fellow Catholics. Uh, and, and so I came with the understanding that it was our job to communicate better to them um, and to build relationships with them and to show them the breadth of our Catholic teaching so that they would be able to communicate that better and be able to amplify it more effectively. That's not to say that there isn't bias in the media, but it is to say that we can work against it. And I have to say, certainly in the current context that we're in, that in many ways the secular media has been our friend. When it comes to the abuse crisis, very sadly, we've had to rely on the secular media often and often Catholic media as well to expose issues that, that we wish we had heard about first from our leaders. So in many ways, we owe them a debt of gratitude. There is an issue of bias, to be sure, but for the large part, these are people who want to do their jobs well, and it's our job to help them relationship and encounter, as Pope Francis likes to say, surely matter in uh, working with the media and helping people uh, not demonize us, but also we have to help them better tell our story, as you said. What are two maybe practical tips that you would give to dioceses or state Catholic conferences like here in Minnesota about working with media from the standpoint of the church besides the importance of forming relationships? Sure. The first I would say is that substance drives communication. Substance drives our work with the media. So it's not, Pope Francis has this great letter to the U.S. bishops last year when he talks about the abuse crisis. This is when they went on their retreat in January. And he says, it's not about marketing. It's not about strategizing. It's about the beating heart of the gospel. That's what communicating is. That's what what coming out of uh, this crisis and rebuilding credibility is about. And to do that, it's not about spin. It's about offering substance and truth and honesty. And so to my mind, the first very practical piece of advice is to make sure that that those who are are, uh, making policy, those who are driving your actions, are really delivering on substance and that they're offering it to you to communicate. Um, And the second thing I would say is that, you know, many people have said that uh, you can tell the vitality of an institution by whether it's looking for converts or whether it's looking for heretics. And I think that our job is to make sure that we demonstrate the vitality of our institution by looking for converts, by making sure that we encounter and engage and persuade rather than seeking to distance and judge and condemn. 
That's how we communicate effectively. That's how we reach out to people who, uh, with the beating heart of the gospel, as Pope Francis would say. That's great that you should mention that I listened to a podcast, in fact, this morning where the I think it was a Dominican priest saying that the first work of evangelization is getting people's hearts beating again. It's like doing that uh, fibril- the, it's the <laughs> fibrillation process, you know, where everyone yells clear and then you put the charges on and get it going again. So that's a great uh, analogy and uh, timely based on what I heard this morning. So thank you for that. It seems that, Kim, just at a time when Catholic social thought is most needed in our public life, the credibility of the messenger, the church, has been weakened. How do we still, in this environment, communicate this great tool, Catholic social teaching, Catholic social doctrine, that Pope John Paul said was, in fact, a tool of evangelization and seems so needed in our either-or polarized political culture? Well, you're exactly right, Jason. Our credibility has really, uh, really fallen uh, for obvious reasons. I think there was a, a Gallup poll just this last January that said a record low 31%, 31% of U.S. Catholics rated the honesty and ethical standards of the clergy highly. And this was a, like an 18-point drop from an already low standard. So, so credibility is an all-time low. And so how do we get past that? I think that's a great question, and the first answer to that is to again look to the gospel, that humility is our strength. That's the paradox at the heart of the gospel. And to do that, we need to be humble and own up to our failings, but we also need to witness to the the gospel clearly and decisively, focusing on our service to the least of these and the good work that people do. I mean, I'm sure I know that that, uh, at the Minnesota Catholic Conference, all the great work that you do and the many networks of service that you all are engaged with. Um, And then, of course, focus on prayer, focus on the sacraments, make sure that's front and center. Uh, And finally, I would say create the kind of incarnated face-to-face relationships that are at the heart of our faith. So it's focusing on humility, focusing on relationship and community, and focusing on service to the least of these. Your current role is Associate Director of the Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life at Georgetown. Tell us more about the mission of that institute and your work there. Sure. We are a lot about what your program is about, which is build bridges. Um, we are, our goal is to bring Catholic social thought to public life. Um, Catholic social thought is all about that Catholic and, we call it, right? We're about uh, respecting human life and dignity, respecting the mother, uh, caring for and loving the mother and her child. Uh, we're about making sure that we uh, welcome immigrants and welcome refugees, and at the same time focus on the great moral teachings, other moral teachings of our, of our faith, like, uh, like our pro-life teachings regarding abortion and regarding marriage and others. Um, it's that great Catholic both and that we are trying to bring to the public conversation. At the same time, we try to build bridges around it. So we always have programs, we always have gatherings that bring together people from different perspectives. We share the same Catholic perspective, but we bring people together who might come at it from different angles. Uh, and finally, we try to resist polarization very actively. We had a wonderful gathering um, in 2018, a convening of, of national established and emerging leaders from, I would say, both the Catholic center-left and Catholic center-right that brought, came together to say, how do we resist the polarization which is poisoning our Catholic community and poisoning the wider culture, and instead bring the principles of Catholic social thought to that culture? And it was a really remarkable gathering. It seems that Catholic social thought and social the social doctrine of the Church could, be, in fact, be a bridge builder itself, yet it's so often misunderstood and not appreciated 
uh, within the Catholic community, my experience is that non-Catholics almost uh, are more appreciative of Catholic social teaching because it gives them a framework and a vocabulary, but yet it seems uh, so little understood and appreciated within our own church. How do you think we can better communicate the principles of Catholic social teaching or, or get this light out from under the bushel, so to speak? Absolutely. First of all, you're absolutely right that non-Catholics use this as a vocabulary or an architecture for how they think about engagement with public life. It's one of the great gifts of our Church to have thought for generations, generations, about um, how we engage as a faith in public life and in our societies, and we have a rich depth of tradition on that. So the question is, how do we bring that to public life these days in this kind of poisoned, uh, polarized, hostile culture that we're in? Um, And how do we particularly change the minds of Catholics who so often see it in, in a kind of um, uh, caricature as as something that is that is simply focused on uh, you know one strain of Catholic fo- social thought. I think that what we do is remember that we are standing together as Catholics against the throwaway culture. It's a wonderful phrase of Pope Francis that captures the fact that we stand for human dignity, the central principle of Catholic social thought. Um, whether again we're standing for the immigrant, whether we're standing for the mother and her unborn child, um, whether we're standing with someone in poverty, um, or standing up for those who are suffering from ecological crises. And I think that it's important that we look to that broad range of teaching and offer it together as one, because it is a unified, it is unified um, body of teaching. And when we stand for the whole range of Catholic teaching and speak to it uh, as a whole, I think people recognize that we're not captured by one political party, that we're not here to make a partisan political point, but we're standing up as Catholics first. And finally, I would just say that I think it's young Catholics who get that the most. Whenever I'm talking with young Catholics, they don't divide themselves in sort of these tired arguments about left and right. Instead, they stand for the whole range of Catholic teaching and want to engage on it. Some people might say that supporting civility in public life and public discourse is like being in favor of children's literacy. I mean, everyone, everybody's for it, right? But there's there's also a school of thought, though, and you can read about it in even some Catholic publications that believe that um, civility, the push for civility, is the tool of the elites to to uh, uh, crush or ameliorate some of the popular anxiety and frustration that's out there with our leadership in this country right now. What's, why is civility important? Why does it matter in the public discourse? And how would you respond to some of those critiques uh, from those who think civility is a tool of uh, the elites in society? Sure, that's obviously a really robust conversation right now uh, in a lot of Catholic journals and other public spaces about, you know, is civility somehow something that harms our witness? Um, and it can seem like the most boring word in the English language, right? I mean, sure, we all know we're supposed to be civil and polite, but is that really witnessing to the truth? I would say, in fact, it's essential to witnessing to the truth. Um, and let's not call it civility. Let's call it the gospel. Let's call treating others with love, right? I mean, that's what we're called to do, treating them with respect, treating them with the love that we're called to do as Christians. Um, I want to be sure to say that, of course, authentic dialogue is rooted in love and truth. This is not uh, a search for a false peace, as Pope Francis has said many times. It's not a least common denominator of Catholicism at all. We're called to hold fast to principle, but we're also called not to in- create unnecessary division. Um, we're called, as Catholics, that doesn't mean we all have to, you know, sort of speak broadly in some kind of mushy general terms. We can have different lanes. You can 
be the head of the March for Life, and you can be Sister Norma at the border serving people um, who are coming across uh, as migrants and who are suffering from that journey and suffering from the the persecution or the violence in their home countries um, and not have to sort of do everything all the time. But at the same time, we have to make sure that we don't step in other people's way or Catholics' way, that we don't treat other people as we would uh, not want to be treated ourselves. We're called to act in love, and that's just, that's not, you know, some sort of mushy, uh, you know, public, you know, generalization. It's about the gospel, treating others with love. Or you might say it's an aspect of the civic friendship uh, to which we're called, and if politics is really an art of friendship uh, in in the classical sense, then civility plays an important role. In that Can dialogue, in that story about that, I think that's a great point. Friendship is a great way to characterize that, and I don't mean to cut you off. I apologize. No, it's great. No, but it's kind of it's it's a funny story because it's how my colleague John Carr and I came to work together. Um, again, as I mentioned earlier, my background is as an attorney who focused on religious liberty and pro life issues, and for that reason, I was seen as someone from I would say the center right. My colleague at the Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life is John Carr, who for many years uh, headed the uh, U.S. Conference of Catholics Bishops' domestic policy efforts. Um, And so he was, because of that reason, seen as someone from the center-left. And when I came on board uh, about six years ago at the at the bishops' conference as the head of communi- as the head of uh, excuse me as the spokesperson, not the head of communications, but as the spokesperson for Cardinal Dolan, there was some press about the fact that I was you know from the right and that this wasn't a good thing. He picked up the phone. John picked up the phone, gave me a call, and said, "I won't believe any of this on the internet that I read about you. If you don't believe anything, you read about me. How about if we have lunch?" And we got together, and we had lunch, and we realized how much we have in common, both in our approach and in our beliefs, because we're Catholic. And and we share so much, not only our common baptism, but a common approach to these issues. And building that friendship, I think, has been essential to building our work at Georgetown. And, and, uh, And I'm really glad that he made that effort to do that, and I think there should be more of that. Kim, since you brought that up, I, I wonder if you have time for one more question on this uh, polarization sure. among Catholics. You bet. The polemics on both sides, you know, Catholics on the, what you call the center-left or the center-right. The center-left says, well, we can't have any more culture warriors, and this culture war strategy has failed. But in the, the next breath, those same people, for example— um, and I'm not trying to cast stones one way or another, but to bring out an issue, they're calling for the church to speak more about migration and climate change, which, at least in this part of the woods, um, these are far more contentious culture wars issues and markers of identity politics than uh, same-sex marriage or abortion might be. My, my question is, is it just inevitable by the very fact that we proclaim the gospel and Catholic social teaching that we're going to be kind of contramundi or engage in issues that are going to be found contentious, but at the end of the day, that's part of our witness and inseparable from our gospel witness. So how would you respond to these polemics uh, from the fact that, you know, it, it seems more often that when we criticize the other side, it's it's not that we don't think the issues are important, but we're not saying enough about the issues that I particularly care about. Does that make sense? That makes absolute sense, and I think it's very true. I think that if you come at it from the right, you think that conversations about migration and the environment are, are culture warrior stuff, and if you come at it from the, like, say, center-left, you feel like conversations about um, marriage or abortion are, are, on the other hand, culture war stuff. I think that that the better way to look at it, as I said earlier, is that we believe in this range of teachings. We, we uh, hold fast to them, and they hold together as a unified whole, and that 
I find myself that, that a faith should be challenging. I don't think of it being a vital faith for me if I'm just going along saying, you know, everything is easy and I'm doing a great job and, and I believe everything uh, that the Church teaches and it's super easy for me. I love to be challenged. That's why when Pope Francis came along, um, you know, I, I came, I grew up as a, as a JP2 Catholic. Um, when Pope Benedict uh, was uh, was in the chair of Peter, I, you know, became a great reader of his work and, and I'm just such a, my faith grew so much and in such a different way. And Pope Francis comes along and I am challenged in another different way to, to ask myself questions about how I'm living like suburban life, and is that something that I'm really living close to, uh, as close as I can, given my context to those who are suffering? Um, am I really thinking enough about uh, the ecological issues that are so close to his heart, or the migration issues that are so close to his heart? That challenge has been good for me. Um, and at the same time, when the culture challenges us about issues regarding uh, family life or regarding caring for the unborn baby in the womb, I like that challenge too, and I think we're called, and it, it makes me be sure that I'm acting um, true to my faith and acting with encounter and engagement and persuasion as opposed to condemnation. Kim, where can people go to learn more about uh, what's going on at the Institute for uh, Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life at Georgetown? Sure. It's, that's, that's right. We're at Georgetown's Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life. Uh, it's Catholic Social Thought georgetown.edu. We've had a number of great programs already. I'm spanning, again, the spectrum of Catholic social thought, uh, and we're looking forward to having one coming up on uh, Pope Francis um, and his record after uh, six years. We'll have Archbishop Wilton Gregory um, and Helen Alvarez, uh, as well as John, um, John Carr, speaking on that and kind of engaging in a conversation on it. And then the, the next one I'm really excited about is we're going to have uh, Austin Ivory, the Pope's biographer, along with Ross Dowsett, the New York Times columnist, um, and then Matt Sittman of Commonweal and Leah Labresco, who's written on the Benedict Option, to talk about the conversation you were pointing to earlier about um, civility in public life, but also principle in public life, and where we as Catholics go with that in this time of nationalism and division. So in any event, I'm really grateful about that, and I've got a lot of good work in the pipeline. Great, Kim. Thanks for mentioning those events. That last one, I would love to be attending and uh, make popcorn for that. That would be really, <laughs> really fascinating. Lively. I'm excited about it. We've had the blessing this morning of speaking with Kim Daniels, who's the Associate Director of the Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life at Georgetown University. Uh, she's really one of the great assets we have in the Church in the United States and indeed globally uh, through her role at the Dicastery for Social Communications at the Vatican. Thanks for blessing us this morning with your words of wisdom, Kim. Thank you so much, Jason. This has been great. And speaking of controversial issues, we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith with public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to delve into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending to our producer, Kit Cross. Kit, what have you got for us this morning? Yeah, so recently there's been a number of changes on the federal level that are impacting specifically the number of refugees that our country is willing to take in. And the USCCB has spoken out against the Trump administration's recent lowering of the cap on the number of refugees that the U.S. will allow in each year. So tell me a little bit more. Why is the USCCB speaking out against this? Why is that lowering problematic? And 
What does that mean on a local level? Right now, we have globally one of the largest uh, crises in terms of displaced populations in history, uh, which means that people are refugees and seeking new homes, fleeing violence, famine, uh, you name it. There is a global uh, migration crisis. And of course, the question is, where are those people going to land? Where can they make a home? And I think if we start from the premise that housing stability, and I don't just mean a physical structure stability, but a being uh, in a place uh, is an important one. Uh, if we, it's often something we take for granted about just that stability of calling someplace home, not just a house, but a home. And so for all these people around the world who are displaced persons, what a really deep struggle that we have to think about and pray about um, and pray for them because what an awful thing to be torn from your homeland and who really wants to leave your homeland. I've traveled all around the world, but I love returning to Minnesota because it's home at the end of the day. Um, and so there's real uh, compassion and concern we should feel for migrants and refugees who have, in fact, been displaced for various reasons. So let's start with first things first and, and the premise there. Now, the United States, of course, is the wealthiest country, perhaps, in the history of the world um, has a unique ability to accept displaced persons and because of the way in which our society is organized, integrate them into society, give them economic opportunity. Here in Minnesota, we have extraordinary experience with the East African community not just Somali, but Ethiopian and others as well, the Southeast Asian community, uh, refugees in both instances from violence and warfare who've come and become part of the very fabric of our state here in Minnesota. And now we have, of course, uh, Latino immigrants in many places as well, um, also becoming part of the fabric of our community. And that's one of the great things about the United States is that we've always been in some place of a home for displaced persons. Now, historically, um, if you look the past 20 or 30 years, the the cap on refugees has uh, waffled in the tens of thousands upwards during the Obama administration of 70,000. Typically, we've taken in uh, prior to the Obama administration about 35 to 40,000 people. But during the Obama administration, that number went up to about 70,000 refugees uh, per year. What the Trump administration has done is gradually cut back uh, and lowered those caps. Now, the, the new cap is 18,000, which would be uh, historically low given our history with accepting migrants and refugees. And the question is, is that just during this time? Is that the right thing to do? The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops has come out against that proposal as being unnecessarily restrictive and unfair to immigrants and or people who are fleeing violence and persecution. Um, Christians in many places as well um, are being affected by the violence in other places and are unable to come here. So this is a real challenge in terms of how do we welcome uh, refugees and displaced persons. Historically, support for refugee resettlement has been in the 90 percent. Um, only in the recent last few years has that dropped down uh, 10 to 20 percentage points. So there's still a very strong support for refugee resettlement in this country precisely because it's part of American identity. Uh, but at the same time, those challenges and misperceptions about who refugees are, their impact on the community, how they're screened, those are growing. But uh, the USCCB has come out strongly against this new cap from the Trump administration, and there are resources, both the USCCB site, but also uh, Justice for Immigrants uh, as well has more information about refugee resettlement, and we can post those uh, to our show page as well. Wonderful. We have just another minute before we go. We want to make sure to leave our listeners with some practical tips. 
What do you have today in our bricklayer segment? Well, the election is just around the corner, the uh, off-year election, as we like to call it, Tuesday, November 5th. And while it may not be a presidential election, again, it's an important one for local decisions and local candidates and local elected office holders because at the end of the day, those people often have more of a impact on your practical day-to-day life uh, in terms of property taxes and plowing the streets and different things like that than uh, some of your state and federal officials do. So in Minnesota, if you're not prepared to vote, you can register on the same day as you vote. That's a unique thing about Minnesota. We want to encourage voter participation so people can show up at the polls uh, with some identification that proves their residence and then register on that very same day to vote. Now, you can agree or disagree with that uh, policy, but it's a reality here and you can do it. So there's no excuse not to show up on Election Day. You also have time, the right to take time away from your job to vote. So employers have to accommodate uh, your right to vote. And that's important to know so that you can get to the polls. There's really no excuse unless you've got some other serious pressing concern, but it's an opportunity to get to the polls and, and let your voice be heard. Go to mncatholic.org election to find resources, including the USCCB's Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship. That's all the time we have for today. But remember, you can help others live their Catholic faith in public life by being a sponsor of the Bridge Builder Show. Contact our producer, Kit Cross, via email at show at mncatholic.org. Again, show at mncatholic.org for sponsorship opportunities. And listeners, reminder that you can be part of our mailbag segment. Just send any of your questions or comments to show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on social media. Then tune in next week to find out if we include your question or comment in our conversation. Remember, you can catch up on past episodes of The Bridge Builder at mncatholic.org slash podcast or search for The Bridge Builder podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges in public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening and have a blessed weekend.